Hello, faithful viewer or listener, and welcome back to the Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast uh, with your usual hosts. I am uh, Captain Michael Mike Wilson, joined by my usual co-host DK. Hello. Uh, and this is another very special interview episode, as you'll probably have noticed. Uh, we are joined by prolific Star Trek author and the writer of the new novel, uh, Firewall, from Star Trek Picard, which is out now. Uh, and yeah, uh, thankfully, I, I will say I was able to get a, a, an advanced copy. He was very kind enough to provide, and I've read it and have some questions on that and then general Star Trek works. So uh, yeah, uh, thank you for joining us, first of all, sir. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate being here. No problem. And uh, yeah, I think, uh, DK, over to you. Uh, I think you've got the first question to kick us off. Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, when did this? Uh, when did the whole writing journey begin for you? Was there a specific moment where you wanted to tell stories as a vocation, or was it a gradual thing? Well, I mean, I was pretty much always wired for story as a kid. I remember my parents telling me that when I was really young, like, you know, six or seven, I would sometimes watch a movie on the black and white TV in my room at night, like a Pink Panther movie or something. And at breakfast the next morning, I could recite the entire plot of the movie start to finish uh, and it baffled them because they can't remember who was that guy who was in that movie that one time. <laughs> and here I'm reciting the whole story complete with lines of dialogue. So apparently I was always wired to internalize story and put story back out. I started dreaming about seeing my name on book covers, probably around the age of nine or 10. I grew up, loving to read books my mom read to me as a kid and when i was uh, older you know she didn't want to drag me around the supermarket so she'd drop me at the town library and the librarians would make sure i didn't you know go skittering off into traffic or something <laughs> yeah. uh, but there was a little risk of that because once i was in a, a cool comfortable place surrounded by books i wasn't going anywhere i was happy as a clam so i settled in with Charlie Brown, you know, compendiums. And then I found the science fiction books and the fantasy books and uh, read through pretty much everything the library had to offer. And so around nine or 10, I started dreaming of seeing my name on book covers and I would make up mock book covers with my name on them. Uh, and then everything kind of took a left turn briefly around the age of 15 is when I found screenwriting. I really enjoyed screenwriting. I took a course in that at the local community college when I was 15, aced it, and that was a big part of what helped me get into film school a few years later. So I went to film school, and so for a while there, I was pursuing film, television, TV writing, film writing. Uh, my first professional credits writing fictional stories were for TV. Uh, my first sale was to Voyager, my next couple of sales were to DS9, all with my then writing partner, a man named John Ordover. And uh, the Voyager story ended up not being produced for reasons that had nothing to do with us, uh, but we got paid for it. And we did get our two uh, sales to DS9 produced, which was great. Uh, unfortunately, although we made these three sales in rapid succession off of our first few pitch meetings, we never got that lucky again. We pitched many more times and we just never quite connected with any of our future pitches as we did that first time out of the gate. And we still, to this day, don't know why. Um, but I sort of made a transition back to writing books around the year 2000. I had you know, spent a number of years working with John, trying to pitch TV, trying to pitch other shows, other series, trying to pitch movie scripts. And we just couldn't seem to get any traction. 
and there were opportunities because John worked for Simon and Schuster as one of the editors of the Star Trek book line, which at that time was very robust, was publishing two titles a month, 24 books a year. There were a lot more opportunities there. And I had sort of given up on this notion of becoming a novelist at that time and was all focused on TV. And then I finally just said, well, you know, it seems silly. I do have all these contacts here in New York where I live. I have contacts who are literary agents. I'm friends with tons of editors. I know lots of other novelists, writers. I have all the connections I need to go into book publishing. Maybe I should just do that. Maybe I should take advantage of those connections. And so I got offered a book deal after doing a bunch of, say, smaller pieces of writing in the Star Trek books office for other writers, reference materials, things of this nature. Yeah. And then I got offered my own book by Margaret Clark and a woman named, I believe, Jessica McGivney called The Starfleet Survival Guide. The idea had already been developed in-house. They just needed someone to write it. I took the gig, completed it. They said, all right, you can finish your book. How would you like to pitch fiction to our new line of monthly ebook novellas, the Starfleet Corps of Engineers series? I said, sign me up. So I did that and made some sales and co-wrote my first couple of pieces with my buddy Keith R.A. DeCandido, another noted uh, author of Star Trek and other tie-ins, as well as original fiction. And my second piece, which I wrote on my own for SCE, uh, a short novel called Wildfire, got lots of really good reviews. It sold really well. And that led to me being invited to write for the Star Trek paperbacks. And so that happened around 2003. And so I very quickly graduated from, you know, nonfiction to eBooks to paperbacks over the course of three years. And then those first two books were A Time to Kill and A Time to Heal. Uh, they came out one after the other, uh, you know, one month and then the next. And the second one, Time to Heal, hit the USA Today bestseller list. And I've been writing for the Star Trek novels uh, ever since. And so that's how that happened. Eventually, I've branched out. I've written for other franchises. I've done comic book work. Uh, I've written for Star Trek in every medium at this point, except for feature film. And uh, I've done original novels and all kinds of stuff. So that was pretty much the journey of how I got from there to here. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Um, kind of related to that. Um you're obviously a huge Star Trek fan. I think it shows in the writing. Um, and we ask this to all of our guests, and apologies if you've been asked it a lot, but um, what was your introduction to, to Star Trek? And was there a standout moment that sort of grabbed your imagination and, and cemented you as a fan of the franchise? Well, I'll give you the stock answer. I grew up with Star Trek. I was <laughs> born just as the series was ending in 1969. And I grew up watching it in syndicated reruns on television through mm -hmm. my childhood. Uh, you know, at the same time that I'm watching Sesame Street, Electric Company, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, I'm also watching Star Trek, the original mm -hmm. series, which back then was just called Star Trek. <laughs> and I must have seen every episode 10, 20 times by the time Star Trek The Motion Picture came out. By that point, I was also a Star Wars fan because I'd seen Star Wars in the theater. Then, you know, came Star Trek The Motion Picture. And I just... I grew up with Star Trek sort of programming my brain right from the very beginning with this vision of a hopeful future, uh, one where we don't let anybody go homeless. We don't let anybody starve. You know, we, we don't let anybody live in poverty. Uh, humanity works together to go to the stars. We build a better community because we choose to. 
we make friends instead of trying to conquer as we go out because we have figured out it's better to extend a hand in friendship than to you know swing a fist in anger it's better to make friends than enemies it's better to build alliances uh than you know than empires and so this is the ideology that i grew up with and so i have basically been programmed by star trek right from the very beginning so i've had my whole life you know 50 almost 55 years at this point with the star trek ethos as my guiding principle brilliant cool. yeah yeah I, th I think i think we're we're in the same boat as you when it comes to things things like that so before we get to the book itself i would like to draw attention to the uh, the dedication which mm -hmm. reads and i hope you don't consider this a spoiler for oh, all no. though for all who were ever made to feel like outcasts and became better and stronger because of it now obviously it's a pertinent line considering the character of seven but Obviously, I mean, as a Star Trek fan, it resonates with me personally, as I'm sure it will with uh, with many listeners, many readers of the novel. Mm -hmm. Outside of the obvious connection, mm -hmm. is there anything in particular, be it a personal experience or a comment made at a convention or anything that inspired that one? I mean, that's just from my own life. In addition to growing up a Star Trek fan, I also, you know, back in those days, the 70s, being a sci-fi geek was not exactly a path to popularity. Uh, science fiction, superheroes, comics, they hadn't penetrated the mainstream yet at that point, not the way they have today. So to be a science fiction fan, a Star Trek fan back then was a mark of, you know, geekery, a mark of nerdity. So I spent my uh, elementary school and middle school and high school years as the preferred target of bullies. Uh, I, you know, spent many a year pretty much from around say fifth grade through maybe the end of high school knowing what it felt like to fear to leave your house because you didn't know which day you were going to get your ass handed to you um, i'd routinely have my personal property vandalized they would go into my locker and destroy my stuff they would graffiti my car they'd throw eggs at my parents house um, all this in addition to being harassed violently being attacked being physically intimidated or threatened, uh, and occasionally just clean, straight up, beat up. Uh, this was my experience of adolescence, and I learned pretty early on, the authorities don't help you. The authorities don't care. Schools in America are set up like prisons for a reason. They are there to break our spirit and teach us to bend to authority and uh, you know, to teach us to conform because the authorities rely on bullies to sort of, you know, do their dirty work for them. They're not going to punish the bullies. It's why if they get punished at all, it's always the zero tolerance policy that somehow manages to punish the victim along with the assailant, which made no sense to me then. But I realize now it's not about justice. It's basically just about them wiping their hands, taking no responsibility, but making it look like they actually did something. So I grew up essentially knowing what it was to be the outsider, the outcast, uh, you know, the, 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 the joke of the town, the one that everybody talks about behind his back, the one that everybody feels, you know, it's safe to pick on because they know nobody's going to come to my defense. Um, and eventually I had to get out of that town. That's why when I turned 18 and I got into film school in New York City, I was happy to get out of the small Massachusetts, you know, Western Mass country town where I grew up. I was very happy to get to New York City 
And my life changed for the better the moment I walked into this city because I got here at 18 with no reputation, no backstory, no baggage. Nobody knew who I was. Nobody knew what my life story was. Nobody knew who I used to be. And I had the opportunity to start my life over, to begin again, to decide who I wanted to be and how I wanted to get there. And so I think part of that life experience informed how I approached uh, the writing uh, of Firewall with regard to Seven at a formative point in her life, also realizing if she wants to be free to become the best version of herself, she first has to get away from the people who are never going to let her forget who she was. She has to get away from the provincial people who are always going to see her as other, always going to see her as target, always see her as less than. She must leave them behind and go find a place where she can start again with no baggage and define herself through who she is and what she does and not who she used to be and who people think she was. Cool. Yeah. I think yeah. a lot of us can relate to, uh, relate to that situation in a few of you growing up. It's a, it's a sad state of affairs. I'm afraid to yeah. say too many of us know it too well. Yeah. And it's yeah. even worse for those who, you know, unlike me, I, I at least said the good luck to be, you know, uh, a straight white guy. I mean, that's, you know, the easy default setting in the game of life. It doesn't get any easier than that. Straight white guy in America. That's pretty much as easy as the game gets. And I still had a shit time. So I can only imagine how much worse it is for people of color, for people who are queer, for people who are non-binary, trans, who are basically different from the mainstream in you know many more ways than I am, uh, and therefore more visible targets. And because they're part of a smaller subgroup, because they're part of minorities, there's fewer of them, and people think it's easier. Well, they don't think, they know. It's easier to pick on minorities because there's fewer of them. You can gang up on them. So it has my experience growing up also made me sympathetic to the underdog, and it made me sympathetic to those who are ostracized, who are told that they don't fit, uh, who are told there's something wrong with them when they know damn well there isn't. Um, mm. So that experience yeah. as well, you know, was was, was part of it. Yeah. I think that's a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's horrifying watching a lot of minority groups being you know targeted in governments and things these days. America is melting down into something I don't I don't like at all. Yeah, uh, the U the UK isn't a lot better. I mean, the attacks on certainly trans people I think at the moment are getting increasingly. Uh, you know, it's it's an easy target for the government to to try and win points, and I yeah. think that's why we need uh, things like Star Trek and things where people can feel a community and a bit of a belonging. Hopefully, yeah. um, you know, ideally things get better on a much bro broader scale, but. In the yeah. meantime, those of us that are that are allies are hopefully are going to be there. So we uh, definitely applaud that for sure. Yeah, um, yeah, and I think it's important that you know to write stories that tell these people that somebody's on their side, somebody envisions a future where they belong uh, just as much as everybody else. That the future belongs to them too. Definitely. Yeah. And to be represented, I think, in fiction more and more, thankfully as well. <laughs> they have a right to see themselves and to expect to see themselves in the hopeful future that Star Trek represents, not just mentioned, but to be there, to be part of it. They, they have a right to expect that. Yeah, completely. Oh, fantastic. I would, would, couldn't agree more. Um, so the next question I had was, was also about the, the book about Firewall. 
Um, yeah. On a slightly lighter note, uh, the book spends, I would say, probably the vast majority of its time with uh, characters that aren't really known from the Trek franchise. Uh, is it easier or harder for you to create new characters in that world as opposed to using sort of familiar ones? It's a little bit of both. On the one hand, when you're creating your own characters, you are not beholden to, let's say, characterizations, continuity, backstory that somebody else has created. You don't have to worry about keeping track of all those little details somebody else made up that perhaps you haven't tracked down every last one of them. On the other hand, it has the added level of difficulty in that you have to make up all those details and you have to be able to establish them quickly, efficiently, in a way that the reader will remember. You have to define the character's voice as well as their appearance. How do they speak? What are their mannerisms? What's their personality? What is their affect? In other words, you know, what is their personality? What is their bearing? How do they carry themselves in a scene? And also, how do they code switch? Some the way somebody carries themselves will change whether they're talking to a superior or a subordinate, a friend or a stranger, uh, whether they feel threatened, whether they feel safe. So, how does this person code switch? What are their defense mechanisms? Do they go quiet? Do they go meek? Do they become aggressive? Um, so you have to figure all these things out. Fortunately, I was, you know, sort of trained in the school of media tie-in writing, so I learned quickly how to analyze these traits and characters and and uh, basically put, turn them back out. Um, and then I was able to apply those lessons when I learned to write my own original fiction when I did the Dark Arts series for Tor Books, uh, when I wrote The Calling before that. So I learned how to apply the lessons of characterization to creating original characters. And here I got to do both at the same time. I've got the established Star Trek characters of Janeway and Seven are my anchors in the book, as I like to say. And then they are surrounded by a lot of new characters among the Fenris Rangers and the villains. Those are also mostly new characters. Yeah. There are a few established Trek characters from Star Trek Prodigy aboard the uh, the Starship Dauntless. Spoiler. Yeah, the Dauntless I <laughs> So you'll see Dr. <laughs> Milne, you'll see Tysus, uh, Sensia, you know, some of the other officers from the Dauntless are there. Uh, so I did use them. But uh, because of the nature of this story, it's a story about Seven leaving home and basically joining the Fenris Rangers. You know, how, when, where, and why did she join the Fenris Rangers. That was my remit. That's what I was told to do. Uh, by its necessity, it means that Seven is leaving behind the bulk of people she knows, and she's going out into an unfamiliar galaxy, and she has to start again. Uh, so in that sense, Firewall is in the you know, style of, say, the classic Bildungsroman, the coming-of-age tale. It is the classic story that we all live at some point, which is the child must grow up, must realize that it's time to cut the apron strings that connect them to, let's say, the parental figure that is both their protection, but maybe also uh, the barrier to them, you know, being fulfilled, becoming independent. Um, they must go out into the world. They must face obstacles. They must face adversaries. They must make allies. Often there's a romantic subplot in the buildings, Roman. And then eventually the, the point of the story is for the character regardless of how they confront or overcome or don't overcome their obstacles or adversaries, what they achieve is maturity and independence. They learn to stand on their own two feet and they become 
the independent adult version of themselves, which is the whole point of the story. So that was pretty much how I approached Firewall. It's a coming-of-age story for Seven, who, when Voyager returns from the Delta Quadrant and comes home to Earth, she doesn't find herself welcome the way she was told she would be welcomed. First of all, her entire found family on Voyager disperses. Everybody has new assignments. This is what happens. The ship gets put into a museum for, you know, refurbishing and, and display. Janeway goes to Starfleet Command. Chakotay is put in charge of the Protostar, uh, a top-secret project, according to Star Trek Prodigy. Tuvok goes off to Starfleet Command in some security role. Harry Kim gets promoted to lieutenant, gets sent to another ship. Tom and Bolana go off to have their kid. The doctor is off on his speaking tour, advocating for holographic sentient rights. Everybody's got their thing. Everybody's got a mission in life, someplace to go, something to do. Everyone except Seven. Yeah. Seven has no mission. She has nowhere to go. Nobody knows her. All she really knows is Janeway. Her whole emotional support network is gone. Suddenly, overnight, she's by herself. She has technically her Aunt Irene on Earth, but her Aunt Irene still dead names her, tries to call her Annika, flinches when Seven hugs her because the, of the cold touch of the Borg implants. Um, people see the Borg implants on Earth, and remember, this is Earth only five years after the Borg walked right up and nearly conquered the planet in First Contact. So the people of Earth are still a little shaken by the concept of dealing with the Borg in any fashion. Seven is really the first emancipated Borg any of them have ever seen. I mean, John Luc Picard doesn't really count. He was assimilated for a matter of hours and then was freed. Seven was in there for over 18 years. So she's a very different creature, and she scares the living heck out of people. She's visibly different. She can't really hide who she is. Um, so she is the object of fear. She is the object of rumor, persecution. And because she wants to keep her name, Seven of Nine, uh, and the government of the Federation says, well, you're Annika Hansen. She goes, no, I'm Seven of Nine. That freaks them out because now she's taking the name of the enemy. The Borg are an avowed enemy of the Federation, and she's choosing a name that is a Borg designation. That freaks them out the way our government in America freaks out when one of our citizens decides to take an Islamic name given to them by ISIS. Uh, yeah. It's the same sort of thing, like, why are you identifying with our enemy, and why should we let you be a citizen? Uh, American citizens have actually been stripped of citizenship doing things like that. And then on top of that, she you know, gets, uh, so she's denied for citizenship, and she tries to get into Starfleet with Janeway backing her up, and Starfleet says, no, 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 no. You've got a history of insubordination. You've got a history of violent insurrection aboard the ship. You seized control of Voyager at least three times and tried to hand it over to the collective. You know, it doesn't matter that Janeway says, well, she was suffering PTSD. There were mitigating circumstances, this, that, the other thing. Starfleet says, yes, but are you willing to risk the safety of the entire fleet and Earth on your perceptions? We're not. We would rather that somebody who has active Borg nanoprobes in her blood and active Borg enhancements not be given access to new capital starships, top secret technology, access to Starfleet Command, maybe access to other uh, uh, cadets. You know, we don't want to let her in the academy. We don't want to post her to a ship. They're paranoid. And at that point, rightly so, you might argue. But it's because of this that she now knows she's never getting a fair shake. 
there's no hope of building any kind of meaningful life on Earth or even within the core uh, systems of the Federation. Everywhere she goes, she's going to be the ex-Borg. She's going to be the other. She's going to be the one everybody's afraid of. So she has no choice but to leave home and go build a new life. Uh, so that was the the underlying structure of the book uh, came from the buildings Roman, and that was the impetus for why she has to go. Cool. I mean, you've mentioned the Voyager crew moving on. Mm -hmm. uh, related to Mike's uh, question, how much leeway were you given with established characters or organizations like the Fenris Rangers? I mean, at this point, we know very little about. Were you given carte blanche or was there you know without spoiling the book anything you wanted to include be it characters or situations that cbs paramount would veto not really uh, i was given a lot of freedom to develop within certain parameters my remit from the editors was uh we would like you to write the story of how when where why seven joins the fenris rangers uh tell us you know give us an inside look at life within the fenris rangers uh, that's part of it. Um, but beyond that, I wasn't given any sort of directives regarding what Seven's motivation was, how she arrives at the decision. Uh, I wasn't told you have to have these characters or those characters. I mean, aside from Seven, aside from the whole book being about Seven, uh, I had no real other remit. But I, I knew that based on Seven's very close uh, relationship with Janeway, that that was going to have to be a fundamental part of the story. Yeah. Their relationship in the show simply dictated that. That's how that had to be. As for everybody else, having the rest of the crew sort of scatter, that was my decision. And I thought that based on what it, it basically tracked with all of the canon details that we've been given uh, in shows like Prodigy, Lower Decks, Picard, uh, I, you know, I sort of looked for all these details and I researched them and it made sense. I mean, I found consistent uh, evidence that the crew scattered for various reasons. And when I looked into it, I'm like, the only person who is accounted for in that diaspora is Seven. Seven is the one who is left behind without a mission, bereft of purpose. So... I, as I dug in, I sort of, you know, imagined what her life would be like, uh, what the environment that she was stepping into would be like. And I was allowed to sort of develop, you know, the, the mood on earth, the attitudes of the people she has to face, uh, to come up with rationalizations for what we were told in Picard. We were told that, you know, she, uh, you know, that her choice of name freaked them out. She doesn't like being dead named. We see that in season three between her and Captain Liam Shaw, played by Todd Stashwick. Uh, so we know she doesn't like being dead named. That's apparently still a thing, uh, even in the 24th century. And uh, we know that uh, she has other issues, that she couldn't get into Starfleet. And I extrapolated from that that the Federation would probably have given her a hard time about citizenship. Because as far as they knew, Annika Hansen was dead. Now, it's one thing when you come back after being gone for 24 years or whatever, or 18 years. Actually, no, at this point, about 20 years. And someone vouches for you and says, hey, she's actually not dead. So you go into the bureaucracy. And there's a, a whole lot of bureaucracy. But you can, in theory, resurrect someone from the dead based on you know, appropriate evidence. But then on top of that, to be told, oh, and uh, 
she's now called Seven of Nine, and she identifies as a Borg drone. Uh, now it's like, well, do we really, is that really Annika Hansen anymore? If she's going to be Seven of Nine, uh, you know, is she a permanent resident alien? So that's the best they're willing to give her, is permanent resident alien. Uh, but they won't budge on the name. They just call her Annika Hansen. They put that on all her identity documents because it's on all their files. You would think it'd be easy, you know, just change the name, you know, click a box, but they don't want to. So yeah. uh, and it's basically about the entran that that element is about the intransigence of bureaucratic bureaucratic institutions to recognize trans identity um, in, in a meaningful way and the way that they contribute to the oppression uh, of trans people. So uh, I was given basically the car plans to do that. And then I developed the, the Fenris Rangers uh, based on my own research. Like I, I, I know that from what little has been established in Picard uh, and in an audio book called No Man's Land by Kirsten Beyer and Mike Johnson, uh, I, I got the script for that. I know that by the end of the 24th century, say circa 2399, 2401, somewhere in there, by that point, the Fenris Rangers have no consistent uniform. They have a hodgepodge of ships. They have no central command. Uh, they, they basically are like a ragtag bunch of Robin Hood groups out there, sort of just randomly... Uh, haphazardly patrolling certain sectors of space. I'm like, okay, that may be how they ended up, but it, no organization starts out like that and grows to any size. It doesn't really make any sense. So what I extrapolated from that was essentially because they had to come from a planet called Fenris, which is mentioned in Picard. How are things on Fenris? I hear things are bad on Fenris. So we know that the Fenris Rangers started out on a planet named Fenris. They were an official organization of some kind. They didn't just come from nowhere. So my theory was that they were like an interstellar patrol uh, that did things like protect shipping, track down fugitives, uh, you know, rescue lost travelers, you know, like Rocky Mountain Rescue almost, except with a little bit more law enforcement power. Um, but then what happened was is that they were chartered by say a number of planets throughout the Kiris sector which is the sector around Fenris. And they have, you know, all these reciprocal agreements with all these planetary governments. And that's what gives them the legal authority to do what they do. But then as the Romulan crisis unfolds and suddenly all these, you know, uh, border planets, frontier planets get abandoned, their governments falter, things fall apart. And the legal governmental entities that used to run them maybe get replaced by hodgepodge, you know, alliances or councils or whatever. But the legal entities that gave the Fenris Rangers their legal cover, their legal right to exist, well, they all just kind of go poof. And once they're gone, the Fenris Rangers are still there. But now the governments that they used to have all these treaties and agreements with aren't there. The Fenris Rangers are still doing their job and they're still following their own code and they've got their own sort of way of doing things. They've got their protocols. But the governments that used to give them that air of legitimacy don't exist anymore. And nobody's taken their place. And as a result, the Federation says, well, you're operating without legal authority. You're just a bunch of vigilantes. And that's the problem is that the Fenris Rangers at this point, they're just a couple of years out from when they've lost their legitimacy. 
they're still trying to be an organized law enforcement and you know interstellar patrol agency but they can feel it the the wheels are starting to come off the wagon uh the places like their headquarters are starting to get a little run down uh they're losing people you know they're 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 losing you know people are basically just leaving the organization by attrition they're just quitting they're saying this this is a sinking ship i'm getting out they've got recruitment problems they've got funding problems they've got discipline problems and one of the things Janeway even warns Seven about when Seven gets affiliated with them, she says, you know, you think that they, you know, are legitimate because they still got this patina of legitimacy about them, but it's going to get worse. They're going to disintegrate over time. They are going to become less organized. They're going to become more like vigilantes, more like, you know, just disparate bands. And Seven isn't really ready to hear that. But in the long run, we know, because we've seen what they turn into 20 years down the road in Picard, we know Janeway's actually right. That the Fenris Rangers, they once had been a great legitimate law enforcement interstellar patrol, but 20 years of having no actual leadership, no actual legitimacy, you know, basically just being left to their own devices, is going to take a toll and eventually they are going to become just a bunch of robin hood gangs cool. and i and that was my invention I, that was sort of me extrapolating from the available evidence and then concocting what i felt was a plausible backstory to explain how we got where we found things in picard yeah cool that's yeah that's fair enough um so uh when you when it came to sort of preparing for the book was there any kind of key episodes that you watched uh, and uh, is there anything that you might recommend fans to watch to get up to speed to to where the, the book begins? Well, if you've seen the end of Voyager, then you know pretty much all you need to know about Voyager. Yeah. Uh, if you've seen any of the seven of nine episodes from the last four seasons of the show, you probably got a good handle on who Seven is. A good example to watch might be uh, an episode called Sunkatsi, where... Seven gets sort of taken into this underground mixed martial arts sort of competition, and she ends up being partnered with a Herogen uh, who tries to teach her how to survive in the ring and whatever. There's some interesting things that are established in that episode. In particular, when you see Seven get wounded, you realize that there isn't uh, like red vulnerable flesh under her skin. When some of her skin gets sort of scraped off in a fight, she's got this black and silver mesh underneath her skin, you realize she's got layers of synthetic Borg tissue right underneath the dermis. She looks human, but she's got incredibly tough Borg augmentation, not just the implants, you know, the two things on her face and the things on her hands, those are visible. She's got layers of tech. She is incredibly strong. She is incredibly tough, much more so than you would think. Um, So Sunkatsu establishes some of that. That's worth checking out. Uh, I did a lot of research on sites like Memory Alpha to look up what Borg nanoprobes were capable of. They can do some pretty crazy stuff. They let Seven take over computer systems, take control of ships. Under the right circumstances, with the right technology to follow up in the right amount of time, technically nanoprobes can bring back the dead. 
if you some provided that there isn't certain types of damage and you get to them in time and you've got the right technology at your disposal in theory all of that combined with nanoprobes you can bring back the dead so at a couple of points i was obligated to explain why she couldn't actually do that in this story right beyond that in picard only thing you really need to see is maybe the end of episode 104 when she comes to the aid, the rescue of the La Serena crew and loses her ship. They beam her aboard and she gets to say the iconic line, you owe me a ship, Picard. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. then the episode uh, right after that, 105, Stardust City Rag, written by Kirsten Beyer, who is a co-creator of Picard, the series, uh, in which we, it has established a lot of the backstory about Seven uh, and Icheb, who was a, a liberated Borg drone who she loved like a son, who was a big part of the final season of Voyager uh, and his ultimate tragic fate and what this does to her. Uh, so that's, you know, that helps to know, that, that would help the reader to understand the, uh, the first and last chapter, the framing sequences that bookend the novel are based in that episode. Um, and then beyond that, no, you pretty much just, uh, once you've seen that, you've got all you need to know because everything else you would need is right there in the book. Uh, the book is designed to be a standalone experience. You don't need to have read any other book to jump in and you don't have to expect to read another book when you're done. I mean, you can just come right into this one, assuming you've seen Voyager and you've seen Picard, yeah. then you know what you need to know. You jump in, you enjoy the book and when you're done, you're done. And you don't have to read eight other books to find out yeah. what happens here. I don't leave a bunch of empty, you know, uh, cliffhangers where you have to go, oh, God, I got to buy another book to find out how that ends. Damn it. You know, no, no, no. One book, one story comes to a conclusion. Everything you need to know, one book. Nice. You've you've brought up, uh, you know, you were given the remit uh, on, you know, what you were going to write. You've mentioned Seven. You've mentioned the Fenris Rangers. What, for you, personally, was the most exciting aspect of working on Firewall? Is there a particular element that drew you to the story? Something that hooked you, personally? Well, I mean, what drew me to the story was being offered a paycheck to write it. Uh, <laughs> but once I got into it, what the parts that I found that I really enjoyed, that I was really excited to write, uh, as usual, I love writing action sequences. They are, you know... One of the things that I'm really good at, I, I love writing good action, especially action that pushes characters to their limits or reveals something about them, uh, you know, what they care about, who are they under pressure, uh, how far are they willing to go. Um, but then the other scenes that were also really important to me were the ones where Seven is standing up for who she is as a person or even just exploring who she is. Like I realized one of the things that was going to be really intriguing about this book, as opposed to many others that I've written for Star Trek was the deep level of psychological exploration that it requires about the character of seven. We spend a lot of time in seven's headspace. And so one of the things I really just enjoyed about that was just spending that time getting to know seven from the inside of her mind. Uh, and finding out, like, you know, just imagining if you see life the way she sees life and you've got her past experiences coloring your perceptions, um, where do you go? Like, what kind of work do you seek? Where do you end up trying to live? 
What is your social life like? What is your day-to-day life like? What's your mood? Are you happy? Are you lonely? Are you sad? What is she going through? And part of what I know she was going through, thanks to Picard, is that by Picard, she is comfortably uh, at home with her identity as a bisexual woman. She has accepted that, you know, this is who she is. She uh, has explored it and she's comfortable with it. There's no awkwardness about it, no sense of that this is anything new to her. But when she first leaves out on this journey, that is new to her. That is something she hasn't explored yet. Her socialization by the crew of Voyager was very cis-heteronormative. Uh, and, you know, that's just a product of the time. It was the 90s on TV. What are you going to do? Uh, but as a result, in addition to wanting to go out there and leave behind the Borg identity that plagues her and figure out who she is and what she wants to be, part of what Seven is also figuring out at the age of 32 is what it means to be an adult queer woman uh, alone trying to find her way. And this is you know, important because she is, as a character, very important to the queer and trans community as an iconic character. And so I felt it was important to represent this part of her journey, uh, to do it in a way that was realistic and you know, respectful of who she is as a character, to not treat it in an exploitative manner. Uh, but it had to be there. This had to be part of her journey, figuring this out about herself. Um, and, you know, other aspects of her personality are allegorical to that experience. You know, her, her experience as a visibly different outsider is an allegory for both queer and trans identity. And in particular, the fact she has this new identity that she's taken on uh, willfully, this identity of seven of nine, and the shedding of the past identity of Annika Hansen is a very powerful allegory for trans identity. And so she is important in this regard. So I felt it was uh, key to sort of play into those themes. And that yields like one of my favorite moments, you know, spoiler alert for the end of the book. One of my favorite moments is where she finally confronts a villain who has been plaguing her throughout the book, dead naming her and, you know, driving her basically up a damn wall. And she essentially takes him down and she gets to tell him, you know, first of all, I will never again be shamed for being who and what I am, you know, speaking about things like her physically connected Borg uh, implants that can't be removed without killing her. They are, they are intrinsically part of who she is. And in that respect, they are allegorical for, for queerness. But she says, but also I will never, ever again be told I don't know my own fucking name. And that's like one of those moments where I hope every trans person just kind of does a fist pump and goes, motherfucker, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> dead name, if you just put a gun to their head and say, don't ever do that again. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> um, right. Well, uh, yeah, fa- uh, fans of uh, Picard and Prodigy, myself included, uh, we've been desperately hoping to see post-Voyager 7 and Janeway interact and it hasn't happened. It seems like a missed opportunity that the TV shows uh, haven't uh, sort of leapt on, and which this book thankfully rectifies, spoiler alert. Uh, so were you aware of the strong fan desire for that interaction, and did you feel any pressure being the one to, to write what finally happened there? I, I had a sense that there was probably a desire for uh, a continuation of the friendship between Janeway and Seven, because it is so foundational to Voyager. Once Seven arrives, the mentor 
mentee sort of, you know, relationship they build over the course of those four seasons was really the heart of the show. Like once Seven comes aboard, her connection with Janeway uh, is really what brings both their arcs, you know, alive. Uh, and you're right, you know, once, you know, we got Janeway back in Prodigy and Janeway gets some really great stuff going on in Prodigy, but there's no sign of Seven. They mentioned Seven, you know, in like a throwaway in Lower Decks as somebody they're looking for, but they don't know where she is. Um, and that's because conveniently at that point in the continuity, Seven is off at the edge of the Federation having her adventures in Firewall, as it turns out. That was just good luck. Yeah. Um, but I could sense that this was important. And part of what guided this was that you know, I was working on it. I'm like, somebody else from Star Trek canon has to be here. And Janeway was the logical choice. And not just because of the mentor relationship, but because Janeway, in a, a very real sense, represents sort of a surrogate mother figure for, for Seven. Uh, and Seven, during the course of Voyager, was like a child caught between a light mother, which is Janeway, and a dark mother in the in the Borg Queen. She's a child caught between these two opposing forces and trying to choose which way she's going to go. Um, that question is now resolved, but now she has to define herself independent of the mother figure she's chosen. And that only works if the mother figure is part of the story. So yes, Janeway had to be part of it. Uh, I should give credit at this point to Kirsten Beyer, uh, because when we were developing the story and working through the outlines, uh, part of her job as the liaison between Secret Hideout, which is Alex Kurtzman's company, and the licensees, people like Simon and Schuster, part of her job is to sort of make sure that the licensed stories are consistent with what they're doing on the shows and, and fit their vision of who the characters are. And this was particularly important to Kirsten, because in addition to being a co-creator of the Picard series, for many years, she was the novelist who was writing all of the post-finale Voyager novel adventures during that time period of extended continuity that we had going on in the books. So she invested a lot of time and a lot of energy in the relationship between Janeway and Seven and into the Voyager characters and then, of course, obviously into the Picard series. So she had a lot at stake here. And when she went through the first sort of draft of my story outline, one of the things she flagged was that my initial approach to the uh, sort of confrontation between Seven and Janeway was too adversarial. It was too angry, uh, too mean-spirited. You know, she said it, it felt overly melodramatic. It felt like the soap opera take, uh, you know, where you know, the, the emotions were amplified uh, to a ridiculous degree, more than would be plausible. So... Fortunately, this turned out to be a great note because I, I toned it back. And it turns out, you know, she was right. What was really needed there was not for the two characters to have some sort of heated, passionate, uh, you know, angry, you know, uh, you know, fight about, you know, Seven's destiny. It makes more sense if what you have are, you know, this uh, very caring, uh, empathetic, maternal figure in Janeway and this usually generally pretty reverent, respectful surrogate daughter figure in Seven, but they've come to a point where they have an honest disagreement. Seven sees the the goodness, the value in the Fenris Rangers. She sees the point of view 
uh, she sees their merits more than she sees their faults. And part of that is because the Fenris Rangers take her in like newfound family the way Voyager once did. Whereas because you know, on some level, Janeway is aware that she's losing her surrogate daughter or feels like she is. And because she has her very Starfleet and Federation grounded ethos, she has a lot of principled objections to the Fenris Rangers. Uh, you know, based on their organizational structure, how they do business, what they do, why they do it. And it's not that Janeway is wrong, and it's not that Janeway is right, or that Seven is wrong, or Seven is right. They each see the same set of facts and arrive at a different value judgment about it. And that is actually a more interesting conflict when you've got two characters who intrinsically, you know, want to, you know, respect and abide by each other, but they reach this point where they just honestly don't see or don't interpret the same set of facts the same way. And that's the core sort of you know, struggle between the two of them. And it's a risk for Seven because, you know, if she pushes too hard, she worries that she's going to, you know, lose her bond with Janeway. Uh, Janeway is actually worried about much the same thing. Plus, she's worried that Seven is going to get hurt, you know, going around with these, you know, renegade uh, Fenris Ranger idiots, which is how she sees it. Um, so seven you know, it was it was thanks to Kirsten that I was able to find that more realistic grounding uh, of the conflict between Janeway and seven so that even though they have this disagreement and it provides a lot of you know grit and grist into the story, in the end, they continue to be two people who love and respect one another. Um, and that is a foundation for their relationship which does not change. What does change over the course of the story is that they go from being sort of, you know, in a, almost a hierarchical relationship of surrogate parent, surrogate child, to by the end, they are equals. And it's reflected, you know, again, spoiler alert here if you haven't read the book. Minor spoiler, but spoiler all the same. Uh, it comes down to the line when, as they're sort of saying goodbye for the last time at the end of the book, and Seven says, you know, you know take care, Admiral. And Janeway says, you can call me Catherine. The symbolism there is, you know, I am no longer above you in hierarchy. It's saying we are equal. I call you Seven. You call me Catherine. You don't have to call me Admiral or anything else. You know, you can just, we are on the same level now. And it's, uh, and again, that's another part of the classic Bildungsroman structure, which is the child achieving independence and maturity and becoming equal in stature to the parent. Yeah, if uh, if I may say so, I do think it's it's probably more interesting and more authentic to the characters that we didn't just have a sort of Janeway, oh, if you do this, I'll never speak to you again kind of yeah. situation, right. um, which I, which I was a little afraid of going into the book. Um, and I do, uh, I think I sent uh, DK over um a, a quick sort of thing that i noted that i said one of my favorite pages again very light spoilers one of my favorite pages of the book because it's so true to the characters that i grew to know uh from voyager is when janeway is being confronted by sort of alternative forces and told you know this is nonsense why are you doing this why stick your neck out and janeway just responds because that's what i do for family yeah. and i was like this is somebody who gets it i love that you know so yeah <laughs> Yeah, and that was. I loved writing that moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. And because it, because the place like that, the other scene in that chapter is uh, Ellery Cade, who is the the love interest for Seven, her first great love of her life, this mm -hmm. troll woman. Uh, 
uh, is saying to, you know, Seven, uh, you know, why are you defending Starfleet? Why are you defending Janeway? These are the people who, you know, rejected you, cast you out. And Seven is basically, you know, making the case that you know, it was the crew of Voyager who took me in, uh, you know, uh, and I know that they see the best version of me and because they do. I trust that eventually uh, Starfleet will and the Federation will. And Cade Ellery makes the very valid point that may very well be, but you shouldn't have to wait your whole life for that validation when you have hundreds of new brothers and sisters ready to welcome you right now on Fenris. And it's a valid point. Yes, I do believe, she says, you know, the Federation and Starfleet will come around and they will, you know, uh, follow the better angels of their nature in time. But Seven shouldn't have to endure injustice or mistreatment during that time when there's another place she can go and be treated with the proper respect. Uh, but again, it's that same metaphor of you have hundreds of new brothers and sisters, family, you have hundreds of new brothers and sisters waiting to welcome you on Fenris. Mm-hmm. And again, it's because found family is part of the theme of the book. Uh, because one of the things that you know we, we find uh, psychologists have sort of studied the way that people uh, structure their adult lives. We often, not always, but we often try to replicate in our adult lives the circumstances that we felt made us feel comfortable when we were young. Uh, And sometimes that means replicating the family structure you grew up in. Sometimes it means inverting it. And in Seven's case, the family structure that she found that she was comfortable in, that made her feel protected, that made her feel accepted, was the found family on Voyager. When that found family structure is taken away, what does she do? She's lost the surrogate mother figure and the found family emotional support network. What does she do? She winds up with the Fenris rangers she winds up with a surrogate father figure in keon harper her training officer who sponsors her into the rangers Um, and she winds up with this found family emotional support network of other young rangers Uh, she replaces one found family with another because that's actually what people tend to do yeah yeah uh Bringing up uh, what you mentioned about Kirsten and the synergy between the the, the license and work and the TV mm-hmm. series, and you're all mentioning about the lower decks, you know, kind of being at the same time as Firewall is taking place. It, I was interested to note as part of your writing the first Discovery novel, uh, it's reported that you came up with crew bios for the uh, the Shenzhou crew that were then yeah. given to the actors, and you yeah. even named several of them. Yeah. Is that, uh, I mean, do you feel a sense of ownership of these characters? And how does it feel as a fan to place your own personal stamp on Trek lore in that way? There's a sense of pride of, uh, of achievement in it. I was an unofficial consultant on season one because I was writing that first novel, uh, because I was brought in very early in the development process of the show. Uh, the mandate for my book came from Brian Fuller himself. Um so I was working on that, and at the same time, I'm getting all the scripts. And because of my friendship with Kirsten, the way it worked is if I saw something in a script that I wanted to note, I'd flag it in the PDF, and I'd send the PDF back to Kirsten. And if Kirsten found the note to be valid, she'd bring it up in the room. And some a lot of things got fixed. We, we, sorted, a, we sorted out a lot of stuff over the course of the first season. 
that way where, you know, nobody knew it was my notes or sometimes they did. Sometimes she'd credit the note. She'd say where she got it. Uh, at least that's what she tells me. Um, <laughs> what happened, though, the reason I ended up doing this thing with the bios and the names is at some point I had to write a full outline and I had to start writing pages. And one of the differences between writing a novel and writing a screenplay is that when you are writing a novel, you have to filter the scene through the perspective of a character. One of the characters in the scene is your point of view into the scene. And when you are in that character's point of view, you're in their internal monologue. You perceive the scene as they perceive the scene. And so you don't just see helmsman, weapons officer, communications officer. They surf with these people. They know their names. They know who they are. These are friends. These are colleagues. These are your brothers and sisters in arms. You serve with them. You're going to know who they are. I can't call them helm officer, weapons officer, and comms officer. It doesn't work in a book. You've got to have names. They've got to be real people. I've got to be able to throw little details out and know something about their past. So I mentioned this to Kirsten. I said, where are they? In terms of naming these characters she said well they don't have names yet they have been cast and she was able to send me the headshots and the you know the background bio sheets the you know the the one sheets for the actors who have been hired so i was able to see who i'm writing about i'm like all right so this person is sitting at the helm this person is sitting at ops this is the person that comms this is the person that tactical so i've got the actor photos and so i said all right so can i just make up names and backgrounds and i'll send them to you for approval and she said sure so the way it worked was I named a bunch of these characters. Uh, you know, I, I named Kayla Detmer uh, at Khan, uh, Cameron Gant uh, at Tactical. Um, they had one character named him Troy Genuzzi, and they apparently did not know how to pronounce the Italian last name Genuzzi. <laughs> and they ended up saying it, they ended up giving it a Swedish pronunciation, Yanuzi. For no goddamn reason. Uh, and it's mostly because apparently, I, I don't know how this could be, but apparently nobody on that production crew has ever met an Italian person. <laughs> and they didn't seem to have, I guess they didn't have time to contact me, but it never occurred to me that anybody would look at J-A-N-N-U-Z-I. It never occurred to me that anybody would look at that and say, Genuzzi. I, I look at that and say, Genuzzi. Yeah. Well, I know how to pronounce an Italian name, and also because this was my buddy in film school. So here I'm trying to name this character for my buddy in film school, and they mangle the name. Um, but I did name these characters, and I wrote little background bios about who they were, where they were born, what they're interested in. Um, you know, I, I even came up with a name for uh, there was like the, the, the this cool sort of you know alien with like the weird kind of visor computer yeah. head or whatever. Uh, they called her the Daft Punk crewman or something. <laughs> Uh, I think I named, named that one Narwani in honor of uh, a woman named Trisha Narwani, uh, who at the time was one of the editors at a major science fiction and fantasy publishing house uh, here in New York. And I think she's moved up the chain. She may be a senior editor or even a publisher by now. I, I, I've lost track of her career. But you know, this was someone who I had met socially, who, who I thought seemed very nice and had a cool name. So I named a Star Trek character after her. And uh, I sent all this stuff to Kirsten. Kirsten got the permission from the showrunners to share it with the actors. She got permission from the director to share it with the actors. And thus, the actors suddenly found out their characters had names. They had histories. They had come from someplace. Uh, you know, and 
she was able to give them that so they had something even if it never comes up in dialogue there's now something the actor can put into their brain to say all right i am this guy and this guy likes you know he actually likes uh parasailing you know, he likes the open water he likes wind uh he likes freedom of movement uh he's from this place you know his interests are this um you know but his secret fear is this and so he's got something even if it never comes up suddenly the character is not just weapons officer guy who goes yeah. beep boop boop now he's got a name a backstory and details and he can sort of ground himself in this and say i am this person and he can mentally transform and take on that persona and build it in his imagination and inhabit that space as a person and not just a job description which is an important thing in the actor's craft to be more than just a job description more than just a beat boot button pusher but to be a human being that somebody has taken a moment to think about and make real and so i was allowed to get away with this simply because out of necessity i needed it i was on a turnaround time where i had to start writing manuscript these characters had to have names um and I, they said fine if he wants to name them you know it doesn't matter much to us we'll be happy to you know work this out they just happened to like the names i chose and so i got away with that one uh they didn't use all of them some of them they overwrote they went nah no we don't like them we, we we want this name for this guy back here I'm like, all right fine whatever as long as i know what the name is i'm cool with it i just need to know yeah. the names yeah but uh yeah yeah i uh, i was given that privilege and i went i think to the season either season two or season three premiere for discovery they, they had a new york event and they were doing a, a big sort of a gala event i think it was in like december it was very cold uh but i got to go and i went with my wife um because the character of kayla detmer kayla the first name kayla i took from a friend on facebook but the last name detmer is a family name uh that is from my wife's side of the family uh i believe on her maternal grandmother's side so this is like you know a really big thing and like out yeah. where her extended family lives out in illinois the name detmer is a big deal it means something out there like you know there's there's a town where everything has the name detmer on it because detmer was the family that founded certain towns in illinois so this was you know uh, the, and her family was kind of chuffed about this and, but i got to meet uh emily coots the act uh, the actor who plays kayla detmer very very tall woman intimidatingly <laughs> tall woman <laughs> very very beautiful uh but very tall uh but i got to say hello and i introduced her to my wife and i'd say i'm the guy who named your character i'm, I'm the one who gave your character a name and it's my wife's family that you're named for and so she got to meet my wife and they shook hands it was a nice little moment i'm sure she's forgotten all about it wow. <laughs> oh, that's awesome that's cool yeah um so as, as i was really getting back to firewall as i was reading firewall um i felt like the characterization of seven was an interesting middle ground and a bridge between the somewhat stilted and more emotionless seven of nine uh, in voyager and the evolution of the character that we saw on picard um, mm -hmm. Is that a fair assumption on my part? And was it something that you consciously did to show the evolution of Jerry Ryan's performance across the two series? It was definitely an intentional choice. The idea was she starts the book out with that very pulled inward, uh, very stiff, very formal approach where she's trying to you know, maintain that brave face and yeah. give the short, curt answers. 
and even as she's first getting uh, introduced and sort of you know folded into the Fenris Rangers, there's still some of that you know struggling to grasp idioms. She's a little bit socially uncomfortable. Uh, there's still lines like where somebody, uh, like one of the Rangers says, "Can I tell you something that'll blow your mind?" And she says, "That sounds like a most unpleasant experience." And it's just because you know, she's taking it literally, but this is just what she does. And but he rolls with it, and they sort it all out. By the end of the book, she has eased into it. She has found that conversational quality. She's figured out this is how we speak here. This is the code here. So that in that final moment during the action sequence, she's actually able to joke, you know, with Ellery Cage. She's doing understated, you know, jokes like, well, that, you know, they got here fast. And she says, yes, it's almost as if somebody told them exactly where and when to find this guy. <laughs> yeah. and it's like, now suddenly she gets sarcasm. She's begun to put it together. Um, and yeah, I mean, that was the point of this journey is that it shows this transition from this uh, sort of tight knit, inwardly turned uh, character that she, you know, she starts out as when she comes home with Voyager. And she goes on the journey and she even pulls further in. Uh, when she first goes out on her own because she's alone and she's afraid. She rightly knows in a one-on-one -on -one fight, she could probably take anybody she comes up against, but she doesn't want to face an angry mob, uh, which, again, you know, that's a very real concern if you're used to being bullied or if you're queer and have ever seen anybody be the victim of a hate crime. You know what happens when a mob gangs up. It doesn't matter how tough the individual is, you're not going to win against a mob. So she very rightfully protects her identity, protects her privacy. She stays, you know, it even says like in the text, you know, from her point of view, she stays out of arguments. She doesn't talk politics. Uh, she just, she stays on the fringe and she just keeps her mouth shut. She keeps her opinions to herself, does her job and she goes home. Um, and so she is trying to just, you know, live this isolated existence, except she's figured out that's all it is. It's existence. It's not really a life. It's existing for the sake of existing. It's meaningless. And that is part of what leads her to rebel against this empty life. I mean, yes, it's hers, but what is it really? And she sees an opportunity at something better. The funny thing is she's offered what she wants. And this is what spurs her into action is going after what she thinks she wants. But it is in the course of chasing what she wants that she discovers what it is she needs. What you want and what you actually need are often not the same thing. Mm. And this is very true in fiction. Very often the character starts out chasing what they want. And the point of the story is for them to realize that what they wanted is not what they needed. What you wanted is a symbol of your desire. But what you need is the true hunger underneath. You know, you, you got to feed the real problem, not the surface version of the problem. What Seven is told she wants is Federation citizenship and a place in Starfleet. That's what she wants. What she needs is simpler than that. What she needs is to be accepted, respected. She needs to feel wanted uh, and, and at home and safe. That's what she needs. She thinks the way to do that, the way to get approval, and the way to get those things is to live up to the thing that Janeway expects of her, which is to become part of Starfleet, become a Federation citizen, follow her path. But she doesn't need to follow Janeway's path. She thinks she does. She doesn't. What she needs is to find her own path to independence, uh, to maturity, to healthy relationships, to basically just being somewhere 
where she's wanted and that she wants to be. That's what she needs. And she's got to learn the difference between those two things over the course of the story. One one thing that both Mike and I loved with regards to Firewall, it was the use of somewhat, I'm going to put, I'd say obscure species from Tretlaw, such as the Anticans and the uh, the Chalnoth from Next Gen. Do you have a favourite obscure Star Trek species or piece of lore? And is there any that maybe you'd love to feature in your work but you haven't yet? I mean, as an exclusive pitch, is there any kind of dream project that you'd like to like to work on? Well, maybe not based on Trek aliens. I mean, I've always enjoyed, for some reason, working with Nausicans. There's just something about the Nausicans. <laughs> they look like a cheap knockoff of Predator, but there's really more to them. <laughs> Yeah. Um, if you've read one of my past novels, I, I wrote a novel a few years back, uh, a TNG novel called Collateral Damage, and it actually digs into the Nausicans. Everybody thinks, you know, the Nausicans are just these big, dumb, ugly brutes, brawlers, try to cheat you at Dom Jot and will stab you in the back, and there's, you know, no other redeeming feature to the species. And then, in fact, you find out in Collateral Damage that, you know, Yes, there are Noskin brigands out there, but it's, you know, that's not their whole culture. That, in fact, there's this whole religious culture. There's this whole mythology behind it. There's a whole social structure. And that suddenly the Noskins become sympathetic over the course of collateral damage because it's like a throwaway line in the Destiny trilogy, which I, I wrote, you know, way back in 2007 and it came out in 2008. It's a throwaway line that Noska is one of the worlds that's completely annihilated by the Borg. As they come from the Azure Nebula and are heading toward Earth, one of the systems that's in their way is Noska. Noska is not even a Federation member. It's not even a Federation ally. They, they, they hate the Federation's guts. It's just their shitty luck that they are on the Borg flight path. They're there. They're a populated planet, and they're in the Alpha Quadrant. The Borg don't really care about your political relationship you're here we're going to annihilate you we're just wiping out everything in our path that's why we're here and so the poor nausicans who haven't done a damn thing to the borg get their planet wiped out almost the entire species pushed to the brink of extinction overnight and so we learn this in collateral damage and the really horrifying part of this uh, is through the point of view of Worf, who has temporary command of the enterprise they, you know, they're, they're trying to track down this Nausicaan criminal who's been doing all this crazy crap, and they, they come back to Nausicaa. They, the Enterprise arrives in orbit over the Nausicaan homeworld, or what's left of it. It's basically just this ugly, destroyed ball of rock. And he says, you know, how many, you know, how long has it been since uh, a relief ship has been here? And they check the records, and they said, there's never been a relief mission here. We're the first Federation starship to show up here since this planet was destroyed like five freaking years ago. And Worf is like, in five years, we didn't send one rescue ship. We didn't send one medical relief ship. We didn't send any food. We didn't send them anything, nothing. And they're like, no, nobody ever sent them anything. These, these people got abandoned. They got forgotten. And Worf, you know, this man of honor, fills with shame. He's like, that is not who we are. That's not how we do business. What the hell are we? What the hell happened here? And he's just horrified. He's like, it doesn't matter that they're not our allies. It doesn't matter that they're a giant pain in the ass. 
how could we not have sent any aid? He's, he's disgusted by it. And it's a, a it's one of those things where you know, I, the Noskins are just one of those species I love to play with because there's just so much more to them than you think there is. Yeah. Uh, sort, of, sort of like what I did with the brain back in Zero Sum Game in 2010. Um, just sort of expanded the heck out of our concept of what the brain are. Um, I can't think of another species like that that I'm that itching to sort of jump into, but... Um, one sort of thing that was established in Picard that, you know, I have to admit I'm tantalized by and would kind of like to see again is the co-op Malat. Co-op Malat are fun. <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> they're the principle of absolute candor. So it's like they'll tell you exactly what's on their mind. If you ask them questions, they'll give you a literal answer. You know, they won't be idiomatic. They'll just spit it right out. Um, and plus, as Picard described them, the deadliest fighters in single combat he's ever seen. So, and he doesn't just mean with a sword. He's saying deadliest fighters in single combat. That includes hand-to-hand, -hand, blade weapons, melee weapons, projectile weapons, beam weapons. I'm like, okay, so basically they're super commando warrior nuns who will just tell you right to your face that you're an asshole. I love this. I've got to play with this toy. Please let me play with this toy. So if there's a toy I mentioned to play with, uh, and I actually do get to play with them a little bit in a short story I have coming up at the end of the year in Star Trek Explorer magazine. Um, but it's just a short story. Um, but even still, I, I, I could definitely see having some fun on a bigger stage with the co-op a lot. Nice. Um, you've kind of already mentioned that this book is, you know, it's intended as a love letter of sorts to uh, anyone who feels like an outsider and particularly to the, the LGBTQ community. Um, did you find it difficult writing for, for queer characters? And was there any sort of research that you did before tackling that? Well, I think it helps that over the last, you know, 30 years or so, as I've lived in New York, I've had a great many friends and colleagues who were uh, queer and trans. There are members of my own family uh, who are, uh, who identify as queer or trans. And I think that I, when I sought out in terms of characterization, uh, based on my own experience, is simply that which uh, is common to us. What what makes us all human? Where at heart are we all the same? And uh, I find that it's really in that sense of vulnerability. Uh, it's in that sense of you know fear, uh, that that longing to be accepted, the longing to be safe. Um, there's a, a sense of vulnerability that I think attaches to anybody in that moment when you are emotionally putting yourself out there unguarded for the first time and you don't know if it's going to be reciprocated or not you're you're hoping for the best but if it goes badly it's going to just be crushing uh, and i think that that feeling of vulnerability that hope and desire coupled with fear uh, is just like a universal human experience uh, and i think that what i did is i i I sort of just, I went for that. I tried to find what was, what felt honest, true, and just simply human uh, at the core of the character, rather than focus on those aspects of the character that make them different. Uh, for example, that's why I focus on the emotional connection uh, between, uh, you know, emotional and romantic connection between Seven and Ellery Cade, 
but I don't really pay any time on their physical coupling. That's not part of the book. I wasn't writing erotica. I wanted to write a romance. That was the whole idea. Um, and also, I didn't want those sort of intimate moments of two queer women to become subject to what is known as the male gaze. Um, they don't need a, a man's perspective on their intimate moment. Uh, that belongs to them. That's theirs. Um, what I'm trying to get at is the emotional truth of how do they find each other? How do they get past each other's emotional defenses? And then how do they stay bonded through the story? Uh, and then the other thing that you know I was conscious of, because I've seen many, many queer and trans readers and just other readers who are sensitive to these issues uh, point them out over and over again over the last several years. There were certain tropes I knew had to be relegated to the dustbin. Um, there's one called bury your gaze, where somehow mm -hmm. you, you establish a character as gay or queer or trans or something, and somehow they always wind up dead by the end of the yeah. story. Yeah. Uh, tragic queer, where you, you allow the characters to have a queer relationship, but then one of them has to be tragically killed or separated, or they have to be tragically separated at the end of the story or something happens to end their relationship and they wind up alone again. Um, oh, and then the other was the interesting character of color who has to die to show the situation is serious. Yeah. Um, so I was aware of all of these and I made a specific point that not one of them has a home in this book. Not one of them has a place Good. here. Um, like the interesting character of color is Luke and Sagasta described as, you know, dark brown skin and a bright white Cheshire cat smile. He's the hot shot of the group. The ladies' man, the hotshot pilot, uh, the fast talker, the glib guy, the funny guy. He lives. Comes out unscathed. Spoiler. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, Ellery and Seven. At least in terms, they, they maybe don't live happily ever after, but they live happily through the book. Yeah. Uh, and you know, this is the first great love of Seven's life. And I think most of us, you know, at one point or another, you have that first sort of great you know, uh, romantic crush, whatever that turns into a relationship. You have that first relationship, that first love of your life. Sometimes for some people it works out. A lot of people it doesn't. Relationships end for a lot of reasons. Not always tragic. Not always, someone doesn't always have to die. It doesn't always have to be grand drama. Sometimes people just realize, hey, you know, we're actually a little more different than we thought. We don't really mesh that well. Or they realize, you know, I'm kind of sick of being a Fenris Ranger. I'd like to go live in a small house and go back to civilian life. And the other person says, well, I don't. Yeah. Uh, or it could be any number of things. You know, any number of things can end a relationship. It doesn't always have to be somebody tragically killed. Um, and so one of the things I was committed to was getting to the end of the story and keeping Ellery and Seven together and acknowledging, you know, down the road, we know the relationship probably won't work out. At some point... This relationship will go on the rocks. Something will happen. It'll be sad, bittersweet. There'll be tears shed, whatever. Something sad will happen to the end to end their relationship. But you know what? It won't be in this book, and it won't be done by me. Okay. So you know, maybe it's inevitable, but that doesn't mean I have to do it. That's good. Uh, you co-wrote, uh, I mean, two fantastic DS9 episodes, Starship Down and It's Only a Paper Moon. And anybody that is a regular listener to this show knows that It's Only a Paper Moon is pretty much one of my all-time favourite episodes. What was the experience like of writing for TV Trek and how did it differ from writing from, say, the expanded media? 
Well, it pays a lot better, I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, I mean, the experience is just completely different. You're talking about a collaborative medium as opposed to a singular medium in terms of the writing experience. Um, it starts in TV. It starts with a pitch. You are pitching a high concept, usually in a sentence. Um, like when I pitched the idea of Starship down to my writing partner, it started as, I want to sink the Defiant. And he said, okay, tell me more. And the point was that the night before, I had just watched uh, one of my favorite movies, the German submarine film Das Boot. I said, I want to do basically the story of Das Boot, you know, but for, uh, or maybe the Poseidon Adventure. And basic idea is Defiant is doing its thing. Uh, maybe they're negotiating some sort of deal. Jemadar attack. They go down, and as part of an evasive maneuver gone wrong, they wind up crashing down into an alien sea. And underwater is not the environment a ship is made for. It's made to survive zero atmosphere, vacuum. You know, it's made to operate in vacuum up in space. It's not meant to operate under crushing pressure, you know, 600, 700 feet down. He goes, that's interesting. I like it. We started, you know, talking it out and working it out. And that was how we pitched it, uh, along with a lot of cool sequences. And then they changed it to a gas giant because that was more science fictional. But they liked the basic idea, and they bought it pretty much the moment we pitched it to them. Uh, Paper Moon started very differently. That started as a pitch called Everybody Comes to Quarks, which is a play on the name of the play Everybody Comes to Ricks, which was the basis for the movie Casablanca. Yeah. Everybody Comes to Quarks was going to be – it was pitched as a bottle show, which is a show that uses only standing sets – uh, and the main cast as much as possible, minimal special effects, minimal space shots. You do it to save money and to save shooting time. And the idea was to have the entire episode take place inside Quark's bar. Every moment, every shot, every scene, it's all in Quark's bar, the whole thing. So you only, for one week of shooting, you only have to light one set. Yeah, and you keep everybody on one set, and you just shoot vignettes uh, as you go through. And the idea was all the intersecting storylines are moving in and out of Quark. So almost like an episode of Cheers. And they said they like it. They love the idea. And they love the fact that it's so cost efficient. They love the bottle show concept. But they weren't sure where it fit. They weren't sure what to do with it. But they wanted to keep it on tap. So they said, we're going to hang on to this one and we'll get back to you. And what we didn't know is that for three years, they would keep coming back and say, hey, what about that uh, Quark's bottle pitch we got? They'd go back, can this work here? Can we use this for this? And they'd argue it out, and they'd make some more notes. they go, no, all right, I'll put it back on the shelf. And they would do this for three years until they finally came up with Nod coming home with you know his artificial leg, and he needs to do rehab in the hollow suite. And they said, well, we can adapt that from that Quark's pitch. And I guess that was, you know, they were talking about the Quark's pitch that we had done. And that was, they said, well, we can use this for the Nog storyline. We can take this part and this part. We can use this. We can use this. We change this to the holodeck instead of Quarks. We do this. You know, I make the notes. All right, call up Mac and Ordover. Have them rewrite the story outline and send it back. So we get a call three years after we pitch. And they tell, and Ron Moore tells us the new story. He says, here's the new story. Write this down. So we write it down. We're on a double call when we're writing it down. And they go, okay. He says, clean that up. Turn it into about four or five pages of outline. Send it back to us. We'll get you a story credit. We'll get you a contract. You'll get paid. And then I'll uh, crank out the script because we got to shoot this thing next week. We said, all right, fine. So we do what we were told and signed our contracts. And we sent in the outline. And they sent us money. And he wrote the scripts. And it was hilarious because you know they could have done all of that without us. 
we right. never would have known that it had anything to do with our pitch. But Ron Moore and our Stephen Bear and Hans Feimler, Robert Ewart Wolf, the guys who constituted the room at DS9 at that time, these are all guys of incredible honor and principle. They all have integrity, which is a rare thing in Hollywood. Sure, we would never have known, but as Ron Moore said, we all would have known. They said, we know that when this thing finally came together, it was after 30 pages of notes in a folder and said, you know whose name is on the front of that folder? Yours. This pitch, you may not understand how it happened over three years, but three years of conversation about this pitch got us to here. Your pitch here got us to here. That's why your name is on it. Well, we went, okay. And so we rewrote the outline. We sent it back. Ron writes the script. The funny thing is, you read the outline that John and I wrote. Like, there were a lot of gaps left in it. They didn't really have explanations for everything. So that was up to me and John to sort a lot of stuff out at the story stage very quickly. And the script that was finally shot for Paper Moon contains more of the actual words and ideas that John and I put down on paper than Starship Down. Starship Down says written by David Mack and John J. Rudolph. We have stole writing credit. We recognize almost none of the words in that episode. Renee Echeverria had to rewrite that script five times based on notes from the room. Some of them story related, some of them budget related, some of them schedule related. He had to rewrite that thing five times. And as a result, when he got done, I think we counted, John and I, like maybe 10 words in the whole script, 10 words of dialogue that were ours. We don't recognize any of the rest of it. We were like, all right, we'll take the credit. We'll take the money. We appreciate it. Uh, but we see more of our actual work on the screen in Paper Moon than we did in uh, Starship Down. And yet, on Paper Moon, we're only credited for story. TV is a weird, weird medium. Yeah. And a writer's room is a weird, weird place. It's, it seems democratic, but it's actually run by a, a tyrant king called the showrunner. And your mission as a staff writer, producer, whatever... You are there, yes, to contribute ideas, whatever, but at the end of the day, everyone is there to support the showrunner. The showrunner has a vision, and all the other writers are there to write in the style that the showrunner wants them to write, to craft stories in the direction that the showrunner wants the stories to go. Yes, you try to put your own ideas in the mix when you can, but you can't be possessive. If it doesn't click, if it doesn't engage with the showrunner right away and the showrunner says no I, i'm bumping against that you don't keep trying to sell your idea you go all right well uh, you either sit back and go all right i'll think of something else or if you've got something you say all right we could try this instead and you pitch something else once an idea is shot down by the showrunner it's over just yeah. let it go let it fly yeah. away like a little bird it's not coming back uh, as opposed to you know being a novel writer where the only arbiter is you you are alone you are in a room, you have blank pages, and the only person who is responsible for filling them is you. You have nobody else to talk to. You have nobody else to call. You can call your editor, and your editor will say, what are you asking me for? This is why we pay you. We pay you to write the book. That's why you're here. That's why we give you money. Go write the book. So as a, uh, th there's a, a joy to being in the writer's room and that you have this support of this network of creativity you have all these creative minds around a table all trying to row in the same direction 
Now, whether or not they actually accomplish that, that's a whole other thing. Sometimes everybody's rolling in their own direction and the room is chaos. But with the right vision, the right leadership, and a little bit of luck, you get everybody rolling in the same direction. And a TV writer's room is an amazing place. This engine of story where stories can be leveled up very quickly because you've got a bunch of talented people all throwing their best ideas and one person, hopefully one really good arbiter at the top going, that one, all right, that's good. Build on that. That's great. Build on that. Can we put those two together? Can we find a thematic relationship there? If you've got a good person running it, a writer's room is an amazing thing. Whereas being a novelist is a very lonely thing, but nobody second guesses you. You don't have to argue. Once you've made up your mind, your mind is made up. Now, if you can function in a writer's room, which is very difficult, uh, very ego bruising, uh, and it's very easy to get fired if you do the wrong thing. But if you can survive that, you get paid really well. You get paid a lot more for that at the lowest levels of echelon than you will ever make as a novelist, unless you are one of the lucky 20 or 30 top tier novelists. Unless you're like one of the top 30 or 40 novelists in the world, you will never make as much as you would make as an entry-level TV writer. An entry-level TV writer makes fuck ton more money. So wow. that's the beauty. But you also have to eat a lot more shit. You yeah. Eat a lot of shit and smile while you're doing it and stay quiet. You can make a pretty good living in TV. Um, if you don't have that capability, maybe you should look into writing books. I see. And learn to live frugally. Yeah, yeah. I, th I, th I think I would be the latter. Yeah, <laughs> look where I am and figure out where I am in that uh, equation. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, speaking of TV, though, you are an official consultant on Lower Decks and Prodigy, I believe. I um, was. I, I consulted on the first season of each show, and that's it. My job, oh, okay. my my work for those shows has been concluded for some time. Oh, I hadn't realized that. Sorry. Um, well, firstly, I have to commend your taste because. I did find a quote online of you praising the Prodigy episode, Time Amok, which is, again, one of our favorites. So good. Um, uh, and secondly, it was just what was what did the job entail? And even if it was just for that first season of each, uh, and what was the experience like of, of consulting on those shows? Uh, the experience is a little different between the two shows. Uh, the, the job description is the same. Uh, they send me, in theory, uh, story outlines and or scripts. Uh, or any other material on which they want my opinion. And as a Star Trek expert consultant, my job is to say this you know, is great or this element here or that element there doesn't feel quite Trekky enough or uh, a Trekkier way to say this would be this. Or you know, Starfleet doesn't use this terminology. The word that would come up here would probably be this. Um, this is not the way this bit of Star Trek technology works. This bit of technology would do this, this, and this. Uh, so to get the effect you're looking for, part of my job is not just to say this doesn't work because I'm also expected to say, but to get the outcome that you want, here's what you could do. You could do this, this, and this. This would stay consistent with what's established in track and gets you the outcome that you're looking for. So my job is to essentially look at where they want to go. They want to climb to the peak of Mount Star Trek. My job is to be the Sherpa. My job is to know the best route up the mountain, to know where all the crevices are, to know where all the rock slides are, to know where all the hidden ice pits are, and guide them around all the hazards 
Make sure they avoid all the dead ends. Make sure they don't wind up going off a cliff. My job is to get them safely, quickly, and cost-effectively to the top in the trekkiest manner I know how. And then once they're at the top and they've planted the flag and it's time for the group photo, my job is to step out of the way and not be in the photo. Right. <laughs> did, did you, uh, I mean, did you have, did you suggest personally any elements that they use that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, but I'm not sure how much I really ought to say about it. I know that um, a lot of my contributions to Prodigy got uh, used. First of all, I was brought in to consult on Prodigy much earlier in their process. When I first started talking with the Hageman brothers, they were still locking down the show concept and were working on the final presentation of the show concept for Alex Kurtzman. And so they consulted with me about that. Uh, we were talking about things as intrinsic, as basic, as fundamental as what's a good species for this character? And what is this character? What do, you, what do we think this character's arc might be about? How do we explain this? Uh, you know, what would be a rationale for this thing? Um, and so I would be offering sorts of suggestions like, well, you know, based on where they are, the, this character species would probably be better this than that. Um, you know, this principal character, uh, I see what you're going for. We don't have something equivalent to that in Trek, but uh, something that's very close, you could do this, you could do that, modify it in this way, and that gets you the character design that you want. And they went, oh, that's great. So, you know, they took a lot of those ideas that were fundamental at the character design for the principal characters. Uh, you know, I was contributing and offering ideas on that into the show concept itself. Uh, then they would show me like the story grid for the season, which shows each character's individual story arc and describes yeah. the steps in it, the overall series story arc and the steps in that. Uh, and then they would show me the episode grid, which explains how each episode contributes to each of these arcs and then tells its own story and yada, yada, yada. So, and then I'm seeing all the story outlines. And I can go through the details in each outline and I would flag notes in there. I'd say, well, not this, but this. Or, well, actually, a character, you know, you wouldn't do this, you would do that. If you can do this, you don't need to do that, you know, in Trek. You know, you don't need to have 40 pads. It's like a, having an iPad. You wouldn't buy 20 iPads. You'd put 20 files on one iPad. You don't need 20 pads. Uh, Trek, got, Trek TNG got that wrong. Bye-bye. Yeah. So little things like that where, you know, I'd be fixing things as I went along. And the stuff that they like, they take into the room and they adjust it and then, you know, they adjust the outlines accordingly. Then they write the scripts. Then I put the, I do another round of notes on the scripts. They revise the scripts. Uh, and then they keep revising them all through production. But at that point, it's so far along that I don't see them anymore. I see them up until about maybe the first or second draft of the teleplay. And then after that, my responsibility is done. Uh, now, technically, I was doing the same sort of work on lower decks, but they would bring me into the process at a later stage so I had less opportunity uh, to make meaningful changes or contributions. Um, I absolutely, I really liked having your uh, your music playlist to refer to as I was reading Firewall. Um, yeah, without any, yeah, without any huge spoilers, um, is there anything you can say about like how some of the music might tie into the story and how it inspired or informed it? Well, a lot of the tracks that are in there, uh, you know, if they're movie score tracks, then they were probably music that inspired specific action sequences maybe not beat for beat but in terms of tempo or tone 
you know, things like Morocco Chase goes with uh, the the speeder bike chase, uh, where you know Seven has first met Harper. Uh, Norway Chase is her battle against the the killer drones on the uh, the Starship graveyard. Um, there's a whole suite from the end of Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, like three tracks in a row right at the end, which correspond with the big uh, action finish uh, at the end of the book. Uh, but then a lot of the pop music, like the punk, the punk rock especially, is there because of its attitude and, and what that sort of conveys. Uh, like the first track on the list, I believe, is Running to Stand Still by U2. And if you listen to the lyrics, it's a song about a woman who is trapped, uh, you know, in, in sort of a, a life. She feels stagnated. She feels trapped. She feels uh, imprisoned almost. And she's yearning to get out. Um, so that song pretty much encapsulates Seven's frame of mind at the beginning of the story. And you can compare and contrast that with Joan Jett's Bad Reputation, which I sort of imagine as the closing titles music. That's Seven's persona and attitude at the end of the story after she's gone through her journey and her change of character. Yeah. And then around the middle, you see Crimson and Clover, also by Joan Jett, one of the great lesbian love anthems ever recorded. That's the music for the moment when she and Ellery first meet. Um, there's a track in there by Lauren Balfe, a uh, composer who did music for the His Dark Materials series on HBO, uh, as well as some of the Mission Impossible movies and many others. He's one of my favorite composers ever. Uh, he, there's a track by him on there, I think, called Lee's Choice from season two of Dark Materials. Uh, spoiler alert, that goes with the death scene of a major supporting character, and it's meant to rip your heart out. Right. Um, so a lot of the music, and like the punk music up front uh, by Amwell and the Sniffers, uh, songs like Control, Freaks to the Front, um, that's sort of tied into the club that Seven goes to while she's sort of living in the, the city of Starheim. Um, and punk was a big, big influence on the book in terms of its attitude, uh, my perception of Seven's inner voice. Uh, you know, Amel and the Sniffers, uh, in, especially, they're an Australian punk band. Um, they're very well regarded over there. They've got a number of albums out. They're doing a big tour this summer in the US uh, with Foo Fighters and the Hives. Um, it's just they're an incredible band and i feel like for me they that they capture the inner life of seven um so like for instance starfire 500 is one of their songs i took it as the name of the type of starship that the fenris rangers use in real life starfire 500 is a type of roller skates uh, but i just love the name so I, I borrowed it as an homage the bar that seven goes to in starheim is called monsoon Monsoon is inspired by a song called Monsoon Rock by Ammo and the Sniffers. Uh, Freaks to the Front, you listen to the lyrics, and it kind of speaks to the theme of the book. Uh, the Outcast, the, the Unwanted, uh, they're being called to the front. You know, the, the singer is saying, you know, get to the front, you know, come, to, come up to the stage. Um, control really speaks to where Seven is at in that point in her life. And I dropped a couple of other tracks like, into the playlist, tracks like... Uh, Gacked on Anger and uh, Capital, also by Ammo and the Snippers, which sort of capture Seven's sort of sense of uh, righteous fury at social injustice, uh, at the treatment of the underdog, at the treatment of the weak, uh, the way she gets, you know, angry at, uh, you know, seeing people taken advantage of. 
And then there's one really beautiful instrumental track in there from the soundtrack for uh, Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, it's the extended version of a track called My Name is Max. And it's from, I believe, the end of the movie. Uh, and in this case, it is the music that inspired a scene in the book when Seven, uh, when Ellery Cade brings Seven to see the scene of a war crime, basically, an atrocity, a mass grave. And this is the moment where Seven, who's been trying to, to get in touch with her human empathy, which the part of her that can empathize with the pain of others, that can sort of have a theory of mind that takes into account the emotional state of others. This is something she's struggled with up to this point. It is her bad luck that the moment that enables her to break through and find this part of herself is this moment where she's confronting this absolute scene of horror. You uh, you mentioned uh, some of your, your earlier track novels, uh, mm -hmm. pre-continuity, pre-new continuity, I should say. Uh, I've got to give a personal shout out to uh, the Destiny trilogy. You mentioned oh. it earlier. It has been by far one of my favorite pieces of track literature. How free were you to come up with the story for that one? Or were you given a, a framework, a remit, as it were, and said, you know, you need to get from A to B? Destiny was one of those things it was it was like lightning striking. Um, I believe it was in 2006, the editors, uh, two editors commissioned it from me. I, I was working for two editors, not just one. Marco Palmieri and Margaret Clark together commissioned the Destiny trilogy from me. And the way it started, they took me out for pizza and beer across the street from Simon and & Schuster. And they showed me a book called Ships of the Line, which is basically like a, a picture book. Yeah. And there was a painting by an artist named Pierre Drolet, French artist. And it was a painting, I believe, of Columbia NX-02. The wreckage of the ship crashed in the desert, half buried in the desert sands. And 24th century Starfleet runabouts have landed on the desert. And figure, little figures in 24th century Starfleet uniforms are scattered throughout the scene, examining the wreck of the ship. And the caption says that the NX-02, you know, Columbia NX-02 has been lost for 200 years uh, and was recently discovered without explanation on a planet in the Gamma Quadrant uh, by, you know, recon teams from DS9. Yeah. And apparently this painting and this caption, which were just cooked up, you know, at random, you know, the, the, the artist painted just what he wanted to paint. And then the editors, I think, just wrote the caption they wanted to write. It's so intrigued so many fans who wrote in to ask where that story came from. Where, what was the story? Where did you get that story? You know, what is the story of the NX-02? Well, my editors brought me the painting. They brought me the caption. They showed me some of the correspondence. And they asked me the, the question, do you think that you could write an epic crossover, series crossover trilogy based on this painting? I look at it. And not being a fool, uh, I say, yes, yes, I believe I can. Because when you're offered the opportunity to write a massive crossover spanning <laughs> trilogy, uh, especially early in your writing career, you damn well say yes. Of course I can Shit. do that. You always say yes. <laughs> and then you figure it out. Yeah. Oh, it took about six months to figure out the story. I take the painting, and starting from that painting, I started asking myself questions like, well, how did the ship get there? How far is that? How long would that have taken to travel? And I figure out this is a warp five ship 
from the 22nd century. And I do the calculations and I realize based on where it's found, a warp five ship could not have made that journey on its own. If it were trying, it wouldn't have made it there yet. It would barely be a quarter of the way there as a warp five ship. Something else happened to put that ship in the gamma quadrant. So I had to work that out. And I, I came up with a whole bunch of different story arcs. I tried this, I tried that. Uh, I, I tried focusing a story all about the Columbia crew. Uh, and the first few rounds of story just didn't quite strike the editors as being epic enough. They liked some of the ideas. I tried, for instance, bringing in uh, uh, a species from some other author's book, uh, the Grigari, which I think was uh, 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 the Reeve Stevens. Uh, I think uh, yeah. the Reeve Stevens did that in like Millennium or something. They had this species called the Grigari that I thought were kind of interesting. And I tried to use them, and I was like, well, yeah, but that's not quite big enough. We're not sure it's going to get a big enough crossover audience. We want something that everybody can relate to, whether they've read the books or not read the books. And so we went through a lot of rejected story outlines, a lot of possibilities that came close and didn't quite get there. And finally, I began to just sort of, you know, just get fed up. I'm like, all right, let's go back to ground zero. Let's throw out everything except painting here and the basic idea. I said, tell me what you've got going on in the books leading up to when you want this book to come out you've acquired books pretty much up to that point, right? They said, yeah. I said, lay it out for me. What stories have you bought from who and what are they? And they laid out the schedule for like the upcoming year and a half. And I'm looking across it and I'm looking at all the stories, especially the ones that are related to the series I've been told to work with. I was told to use DS9, TNG, uh, Enterprise, but not to use TOS because they were concerned that the new J.J. Abrams film was going to come out in May of 2008, uh, they didn't realize it was going to get delayed to 2009. So they didn't want me doing anything with TOS that might step on whatever JJ was doing. And they didn't want me to do anything with Voyager because Kirsten Beyer had just started digging in and was cranking out the Voyager relaunch novels. And they didn't want me messing with anything that she was doing on Voyager. So I was told, hands off Voyager, hands off TOS. Uh, so... I was looking at the series that related to the one I was working on, and then I see, all right, I'm like, well, this Peter David book, what is this? And they said, oh, that's before Dishonor, and they lay out the plot, and it's like a Borg cube walks up to the solar system and it eats Pluto, and Janeway dies. And I'm looking at this, I'm like, are you serious? You're doing that? And they went, yeah. I said, so let me get this straight. You've got a mention of the Borg here in this earlier book. Yeah. And then you got Peter David doing a board book here. Yeah. And I'm like, you've let the 800 pound gorilla out of the cage. Do you realize what you've done? I said, at the end of Voyager, Janeway blew up that transwarp hub network. That was a huge blow. That crippled the board. Their ability to reach us was cut off. They basically had their knees cut off. And now suddenly they're back. I go, that's huge. You can't let the 800-pound gorilla out of the cage and not address it. They said, so what are you suggesting? I said, well, uh, based on what you've got here, these look like preliminary attacks. This looks like them testing the waters. I said, this looks like the Borg are about to stop screwing around. They're not going to send one cube. They're going to send thousands of cubes. This is their past assimilation. They have decided we are a threat. 
they're gearing up for annihilation. I said, this looks like two civilizations enter and only one is going to leave. And both my editors sort of immediately perked up and went, there it is. That's it. Write that. I went, done! So I went away. And I said, you know, but I had to still tie it to the to the painting. So, but I have, you know, the concept of two civilizations enter, only one civilization can leave. So that's my basic remit going into Destiny. That's the idea that finally sparks the editors to go, yes, that's the one, do that. So I start building that. I figure out how to work in the, the NXO2. I work out all the different threads, all the different storylines. I come up with the Kaliar and their relationship to the time travel and the subspace tunnels and this and that and the other thing. And then to tie it all together, you know, and then we start arguing about that plot line. And that takes another month or two to sort that monster out because it's huge. And one of the things my editors insisted on was that I outlined the entire trilogy, all three books, start to finish so that we would know how this trilogy begins, how the middle plays out, and what the conclusion is before they would give me green light to start writing the books. They had to see that I had the whole thing sorted. So I have like, I've got flow charts, I've got spreadsheets, I'm tracking timelines backwards, forwards, diagonally, parallel, um, all kinds of crazy stuff. And I finally hit up on the idea of tying the end of the Borg into the origin of the Borg and this and that and the other thing. Because you know, we keep arguing, like, what's the conclusion? Is it like a massive super battle? Do we finally wipe them out? And fortunately, I was the one who came to the editors and said, nope, we've been going about this all wrong. The conclusion cannot be that we blow them all up and blow them to hell and, and leave them not alive. That doesn't work because it's not Star Trek. That's not what Star Trek is about. I said, we've got to look at the fact that all those Borg drones are slaves. They're all people taken by force. They've all been enslaved. They're all being controlled by some you know, malevolent uh, force behind the scenes. I said, it's not enough to defeat the Borg. That's not a Star Trek story. We've got to save the Borg. We need to liberate the Borg drones. We need to set them free, give them back their lives, give them back their free will, and we need to heal whatever it is that is corrupted and wrong at the core of the collective. We need to set them free and make that right. That's a Star Trek story. We don't, we don't destroy the Borg. We save the Borg. And my editors both heard that and went, yes, that's beautiful. Write that. So I went, okay. And I rewrote the ending based on that, and it all came together, and that was how we got where we were. And then now the last test was, what is CBS going to say? What is the licensing department going to say when we send them this monstrous outline with this incredible paradigm-changing ending, uh, which leaves you know hundreds of worlds ruined, 60 billion people dead across the Federation, the Borg forever altered and taken off the galactic stage. Swaths of the Delta Quadrant now unoccupied because the Borg are gone. Total reset of the fictional universe. What is CBS going to say to that? The note came back this short. Are you sure you want to do this? The editor wrote <laughs> back, yes, we're sure. And the, the licensing department wrote back, good luck. <laughs> no notes. No notes. 
They said, this is beautiful. But are you sure you want to do this? Mm. We're sure. Good luck. And that was how destiny happened. It took a long time, a lot of back and forth. But once inspiration hit, we came up with something that we were passionate about, that we, we felt strongly about. And to our great good fortune, the licensing department decided to say, what the hell? Swing for the fences. Give it a try. And it stuck. It sold like gangbusters. Fans loved it. Um, and as a result, it sort of continued. By that point, we were already doing serialized continuity where the books were respecting events from book to book for a number of years leading up to that. But that was the one that completely alters the Star Trek literary storytelling landscape. And all the other authors suddenly in the line who are you know, lining up to do books that will be released in that continuity after Destiny suddenly are having meetings with the editors where they're being told the events of Destiny and saying, so you're going to need to uh, alter the story of your book uh, at these points in the following ways. And suddenly every other author in the franchise is realizing, I have to alter my book because of Dave Mack? Who the fuck is Dave Mack? <laughs> and uh, you know, that was 2008 when that came out. So here we are, you know, 16 years later and, we had a good run. You know, we uh, got 20 years out of that extended continuity before we had to shut it down with Coda. Yeah. Because of Picard. But, you know, we knew the job was dangerous when we took it and that it, it probably couldn't last forever. And once Picard came around, we we tried everything and we realized there was no way we could reconcile what we had done to make it fit with what they were doing. They couldn't both exist in the same fictional universe. They were completely incompatible visions. And in the end, when that happens, canon wins. It's yeah. always going to go to the, the win always goes to the show or to the movie. The live action track always wins. So we had to uh, retcon our way to a conclusion. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of Coda, I mean, you mentioned it earlier. I mean, it's, it's beautifully written. Uh, but it is brutal. It is heartbreaking. Uh, that was the idea. Yeah. I mean, as, as an author, looking back on it and all those years of continuity and seeing concepts and characters taken in a certain direction that you'd given birth to, did you ever suffer from feelings of bitterness? At not not exactly seeing them washed away, but seeing those those paths reach, I would describe it as a natural ending. And... How does that affect your writing going forwards on this new continuity? Are you always cognizant that this could happen again and events could be retconned? Well, I mean, that's always a risk with any tie-in book. There's always a risk that a future addition of any kind to canon continuity could render one's story um, out of continuity. It's always a risk even with the smallest details. All it takes is, you know, a couple of lines of dialogue in a future Star Trek series to blow my Fenris Ranger continuity all to hell, and then I'm screwed. But I knew the job was dangerous when I took it. The issue, let's say, with Coda uh, in particular, you ask if there was any bitterness. Where do you think Coda came from? Uh, Coda is not just a tale of temporal apocalypse that wipes out that literary continuity. Um, Coda, the entire trilogy, is itself 
a metatextual commentary on the circumstances that necessitated its creation. The whole notion of this, uh, you know, temporal apocalypse, this fracture that is unraveling everything and is going to undo everything back to this distant point back here, that's an allusion to the effects that happen when something like Picard comes along and with a few lines of dialogue here, here, and here, unravels 14 years of story continuity. Yeah. And so it's an allusion to that. And much of what is going on in the story, if you, if you really sort of look at it, if you step back and take a look, a lot of the commentary, a lot of the lines, a lot of the discussions, the philosophical discussions occurring between the characters, particularly in my book, book three, Oblivion's Gate, the discussions they are having are the same discussions that, let's say, the creators, we as writers, were having uh, on the other side of the page. Things like, well, you know, we're destroying our our reality, our continuity, in favor of protecting the integrity of this other continuity, this other vision of the future. Who's to say that one is any better than this one? Who's to say that that version deserves to be saved and ours doesn't? Well, you know, it's not ours to say. That's just the way it is. Well, that is the way it is. Does that make it pleasant? No. Does it make it any easier to go down? No. But at a certain point, you realize that there is a duty, a duty of care, let's say, to do what must be done, to do the right thing. Just as our characters realize, if we don't do the right thing here, the cascade of destruction will continue past us and others will pay for our cowardice. Or we sacrifice everything, we hold the line here, and we save countless iterations of, of reality for others who will never know the sacrifice we made, but will survive because we made it. That is a Star Trek way of looking at the crisis, of looking at self-sacrifice, of facing the specter of self-annihilation, uh, knowing that you know, you're not going to be remembered, you're not going to be thanked, there will be no praise for what you've done, but knowing that it's the right thing to do and you're going to do it anyway. Um, that's really a big part of what CODA is about. And on another level, it was about you know, me and Dayton and James and so many other writers we've worked with uh, sort of dealing with the, the five stages of grief, the Kubler-Ross five stages of grief uh, regarding seeing, you know, our 20 years of work come to a close. And one of the things, like, at first, when I first proposed the concept of working on the trilogy to James Swallow, he didn't want to work on it. He, he didn't want any part of it. He thought, you know, we shouldn't do it. But eventually I explained to him, I said, look, one of two things is going to happen. Either they're simply going to have our work come to a stop with no explanation. Then new books will start and there'll just be no explanation for whatever happened. And it'll basically be like our work just tapered off and was forgotten. Or we go out in a bang of glory. I said, now, if, let's say the editors want to go out in a bang of glory, but we don't do it. If we don't do it, somebody else will. And they're probably not going to do it the way we would want it done. Do you really want to risk somebody else getting their hands on that story. And when he thought about it like that, he said, you make a very good point. Yeah. And, that, and that was when James came aboard. And, but we had to go through those sort of Kubler-Ross five stages, the, the, uh, the anger, the denial, bargaining, uh, depression, and finally acceptance. And it's a brutal process to go through as you sort of walk your, your beloved creations to their end and you 
unravel all the threads that you've spent 20 years weaving together and you release it all into the ether as an act of faith uh, that what will come next will be worth the sacrifice. And there's no way to know that until, again, you're going to look back and then another 20 years at what came after, and only then, in hindsight, will you be able to say it was or wasn't worth it. There's no way to know that in the moment. In the moment, it's an act of faith. You just have to go. Yeah. So, and in a sense, that's also what CODA is about. Yeah. Um, plus, I was in, obviously, an emotionally dark place when I wrote CODA. Uh, it was written in 2020, for the most part. Um, that was when we were drafting the story and then working on the, the manuscripts into 2021. During that period of time that we were developing all this, uh, first, at the top of 2020, Neil Peart, my creative idol, the percussionist uh, and lyricist for Rush, passed away uh, of brain cancer, and I was devastated by that. Four months later, my mother died of cancer, and because of COVID, I, you know, there was no funeral, there was no memorial. Uh, I had to write the obituary, but there was no chance to really go to any kind of service. One day she was there, and the next day she was just gone. And then at the end of that year, at the end of 2020, fellow Star Trek novelist Dave Gallanter also died of cancer. So in one year, three people who meant a lot to me, all just you know taken by cancer. While at the same time, I'm dealing with watching two decades of my work uh, go up in flames, and I'm the one who has to set the match. So I'm dealing with you know with that feeling, you know, with all all the complicated feelings that go with that as well. So uh, you know, Coda is very much a rumination on you know it's on, it's about death, it's about loss, the inevitability of change, um, and it's about facing nihilism and finding reason for hope anyway. It's about refusing to give in to nihilism, even if that means that on one level that we're choosing deliberately denial. Maybe we're choosing delusion by not embracing a nihilistic reality that's staring us in the face. But is that really any better? There's no solace in that. If you're going to go down, at least go down feeling like you're swinging for something. Yeah. So it's basically about you know rage against the dying of the light. A lot of fans didn't see it that way. And uh, one thing I thought was interesting, this isn't universally true, obviously, but as a trend, what I noticed was the readers who seemed to get the most out of the trilogy, who reacted most positively to it, who felt like it spoke to them, and who saw the beauty in it, tended to be, on average, older readers, over 40, into the 50s and older, many of whom who had lost parents or who had lost siblings or had lost children, suffered some sort of grievous loss. Um, I find that the younger the readers are, and if they haven't experienced those sorts of grievous loss, they were less inclined to forgive the story. Uh, they were less inclined to engage uh, with the story on its merits, and instead reacted to it with anger, feeling like they'd been betrayed. Uh, and I think it's one of those things where the story one's reaction to it depends a lot on the life experience one brings to it. If you're already acquainted with, you know, the hard road of death and grief and loss, and it's already kicked you in the teeth a bunch of times, I think you're going to get Coda a little bit better. I think you're going to be able to swallow it a little easier than someone who has not been put through that hell. Yeah. 
Yeah, I personally read it. It was only a a few months after my uh, I, my close aunt passed away, and like you know, your experience, funerals were not possible at that point because of uh, of COVID regulations. So yeah, it did. It it spoke to me on a on that level. So mm -hmm. thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, yeah, well, just just to wrap things up because I think we're uh, we're reaching the end. We've kept you long enough, and we're reaching the end of our battery life, if nothing else. Um, but just as a final question, uh, you seem to be always working. There's always something on the go. So, do you have any other upcoming projects you can tease for us? Or? I wish there were more. Um, no <laughs> novels in the pipeline at this time. Uh, that kind of work is thin on the ground at the moment. I have a number of short stories that are written, sold, and in the pipeline to come out this year. Six of them, I believe. Four will be in upcoming issues of Star Trek Explorer magazine, issues 11, 12, 13, and 14. Okay. Uh, obviously, all Star Trek stories of one stripe or another. And then I have two original short stories that are scheduled to come out in themed anthologies, I believe they're both scheduled for the fall. One has a firm release date of November 5th, and the other one is not yet officially scheduled. Um, those two anthologies, the first one is called uh, Combat Monsters. It's from Blackstone Publishing, edited by Henry Hertz. The premise is real battles and engagements of World War II, but with the addition of some sort of supernatural creature, mythological creature, monster, whatever. And for my story in that one, I, uh, I call my story Boxcar, B-O-C-K-S-C-A-R. That's the name of the aircraft that dropped the second atomic bomb. A lot of people know Enola Gay. Not many people know about Boxcar. Uh, and the crew of the plane is modeled on the real air crew, the real officers who actually flew the mission. Um, and let's just say, you know, as they're going to drop the second bomb on Nagasaki, there's a mutiny aboard the plane, uh, but what the story winds up being about, the monster that sort of brings the story into focus, let's just say it's one that is thematically appropriate to the location they're flying to. Okay. The other big story I've got coming, uh, hopefully at the end of the year in uh, November, it's an anthology coming from Bain Books. It's called Last Train to Kepler 283C. It's edited by David Boop. It's an anthology of what he calls space western stories. My story is called Living by the Sword. And in short, it's basically about a, a young girl of Chinese ancestry living on sort of a distant rock ball of a world with her father. And they are saved from an altercation uh, by a mysterious uh, woman, an older woman of Chinese descent who uh, basically intervenes, much like Clint Eastwood does, say, Pale Rider. Um, and the woman and the, the young girl form a friendship, and you find out there's more to it than uh, meets the eye. Um, so I'm really happy with the way that story turned out, and I'm looking forward to that one uh, coming out. And then I do have one other thing coming out. It's an essay in a collection of uh, academic essays and fan essays uh, coming from McFarland, which publishes a lot of academic books and, uh, and such. It's called Strange Novel Worlds, and uh, it's edited by Isabel, Christine Isabel Karen and Kristen Noon. And my essay in it is from a professional uh, standpoint about writing licensed 
professional tie-in fiction for Star Trek from the point of view of someone who has done it professionally in just about every medium. Uh, you know, both you know, writing for the show officially on TV, but I've also written for comic books, uh, novels, short stories, video games, reference materials, uh, you name it. So it's a whole essay that basically digs into the relationship between continuity, canon, and quality. Uh, and the fact that these three things are separate from one another and are not synonymous. Canon, continuity, and quality, uh, you know, and official, are not synonymous terms. They have their specific meanings. And part of the argument of the essay is that fans don't really need to give a crap about canon. Canon is not your problem. You can ignore canon. Canon means nothing to a fan. The only people who need to understand and know anything about canon are those of us who work in licensed fiction because it's our job, because it defines the parameters of how we do our job. But from a perspective of a consumer, canon is worthless. Canon means nothing. Enjoy what you enjoy. They're all just stories. Love the ones you love. Ignore the ones you don't. And who gives a damn if it's canon or not? It doesn't matter. None of it matters. Uh, it only matters to those of us who do it for a living because we have to. We have to. You guys, you don't have to know. It doesn't mean anything. Ignore it. Don't waste time arguing over it. It's dumb. It's stupid. It means nothing. I, I say nothing this to my, I say it to Mike often that, uh, you know, I, I quote Mystery Science Theater. It's just a show. You should really just relax. Yeah. So anyway, that collection of academic essays is going to be out from McFarland in April. Oh, cool. Nice one. Yeah. Well, I, I hope to see your name on a Strange New Worlds book at some point down the line, if that's something you wanted to do. Um, yeah, because I, I, I've got plenty of books with your name on all over my shelves yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and bits and pieces. So thank you for keeping the Star Trek flame burning and, uh, yeah, just being a, a good representative of fans and a fantastic storyteller, really. So, oh, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. And thank thank you for uh, for giving us your time today. It's it's very much appreciated, and I've loved this. This is this, this honestly. Been it's been a fun uh, fun free willing conversation. I'll be curious to see how you cut it down if you cut it down. <laughs> oh, I'm That's... not cutting any of it. <laughs> All right, you're like, let's see who's sitting there for two and a half hours of me flapping my gums. <laughs> oh, you'd be surprised how uh, how many fans want to know about a lot of the, the things we talked about. So I think it will uh, hopefully do well. <laughs> All right, well, I wish you luck. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, you too, and uh, have a great uh, rest of your day, and uh, yeah, good luck with everything coming up in the future. Yeah. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Live long and prosper. You have been listening to the Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast, hosted by Michael Wilson and DK. Produced and edited by Mike Wilson. Additional material by DK. Please remember to like this episode and spread it throughout subspace. Subscribe to the Hit or Miss YouTube channel and follow us online. Links to all of our social media pages can be found via the link tree listed in the episode's description. For any queries or to apply to be a guest on the show, you can also email hom.startrek at gmail.com. This podcast is part of the Mike's Podcasts Network. You can listen to this and our sister podcasts on all good podcast providers by searching for Mike's Podcasts. Hit or Miss Podcast was based on an idea by Michael Wilson and Will Templer. Thank you for joining us. We hope you'll be back, but for now, 
Hailing frequencies closed. Gotta warp out of here at once, maximum speed.